Hello, and welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stacker. And I'm Kevin Hector. And our guest today is Professor Nisha Jr. She is an associate professor of religion at Temple University. And she's the author, actually, of several recent works. One, An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation. Another book called Reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible. And then a third title that's just come out that is going to be the topic of our conversation today. It's a book called Black Samson, The Untold Story of an American Icon. And it's a book that she's co-authored with Jeremy Skipper. So, Nisha, welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to start out by asking you a really basic question about your new book. The book is about Samson as an icon of African-American literature. And I would guess that some folks aren't as familiar with Samson uh, as uh, this kind of icon within uh, the African-American context. So can you give us maybe a favorite example or two of the kind of reception of Samson that exists in African-American literature? Sure, but first I'd like to go back a little and say it's it's really looking at American history. So it's not focused primarily on African-American literature, but looks at um, American literature more broadly and talks about how this biblical figure becomes part of the conversation when Americans talk about race and how they understand America's racial history. First, Samson might seem an unlikely figure for people to address issues of race, Um, unlike, say, a figure like Hagar, the subject of my second book, as you mentioned, Um, or even someone maybe like Moses as liberator of his people. Um, There's no mention about Samson's appearance, really, apart from um, we find out that he has strength and we find out about his hair with Delilah. But you wouldn't automatically think of him as someone who is Black or even necessarily being someone that African-Americans might think of as a hero. But in part, it's because he is bound in prison that creates the linkage that makes some scholars, some writers, some historians connect Samson to questions of race in America. So a couple of examples. One is um, one of the earliest mentions that we have of Samson is in 1738. There's a mention of a Negro Samson. Samson is spelled with a P there. Um, This comes up a lot when we were doing this work of looking through various spellings to make sure that we were capturing all of the material. Um, But the first mention that we have of an African-American talking about Samson is with Jeffrey Brace. And in his 1810 memoir, he reflects on the fact that he is forced to fight by his enslaver when his slaveholder is drafted. So this is the first sense that we have of connecting Samson with this issue of, of forced labor. A more recent one that comes up is in 2013, the History Channel had a um, the Bible miniseries 
And so this was a, a really big deal on television. Lots of people watched. The series was nominated for uh, several Emmy Awards. And one of the shows included a segment on Samson. And what was different about this was we have Samson who is depicted um, as a black figure. So the, the actor that they chose was black. And this actually created a great deal of controversy because there were a number of people who had questions about that, um, about that casting. So that's sort of the start and then a much more contemporary example of where we see Samson in American literature. This is really interesting, and it's interesting which biblical figures get taken up and how they get taken up. Um, I'd be interested to hear you say more about, as you've done this research, what it's shown you about why Samson in particular gets taken up. There are lots, of course, as you know, there are lots of biblical figures and extra biblical figures who are imprisoned. So then why this imprisoned uh figure why is it that uh as opposed to paul or as opposed to someone else why what is it about samson that's particularly compelling yes so uh in the at the end of judges 16 there's the big finale that we don't get with a lot of other figures so samson uh dies and also takes out a bunch of the philistines with him and so it's not just his being blinded and imprisoned, but also how he dies at the end that I think is part of what makes him such an interesting figure and part of why people talk about him in relation to race. So that's interesting. I think, um, you know, it is the case that we have relatively few round characters in the Hebrew Bible. You know, they tend to be single dimensional the stories are oftentimes not really about the human characters anyway and like you say the samson stories have you know a lot of intrigue uh there's this big finish um i wonder though uh, the ways in which that's connected to race and by whom it's connected to race can you get into that a little bit more uh you know, you noted that this is a feature of uh, American history that's that's very old. But can you say more about the players who are involved and how they're connecting Samson to race? Yes. So this is complicated, which is why it took um, it took a whole book to figure this out. But I can uh, point to a couple of examples of where we see people uh, making connections. So one of them is, um, if you remember your early colonial history, 1776, with Thomas Paine, who's an outspoken advocate for um, the colony's independence from England. And he publishes a poem that's called The Liberty Tree. And this notion of a liberty tree just becomes part of the conversation in talking about American freedom. And the Liberty Tree becomes connected with the idea of the Temple of Liberty. And so the U.S. Capitol is thought of as this Temple of Liberty. And so you, you get from temple 
to liberty to talking about debates over slavery. So both pro and anti-slavery advocates take up this idea about the temple of liberty. This leads to, in 1842, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow has a poem that's called The Warning. And this really popularizes the image of a black Samson, of a blinded black Samson figure. So there are a number of different points at which um, people talk about this liberty tree, about the Temple of Liberty, and that leads to talking about a blinded black Samson. Is the use of Samson or the, or the taking up of Samson, is it itself well-rounded in the sense that I take Jeff to have in mind? Um, or is Samson taken up as a purely sort of laudable figure who can inspire the, the kind of liberation that people are looking for? It goes both ways. So there are some who point to Samson and say, um, you know, this is a hero. And there are others who say, this is a waste. You see, he died along with everybody mm -hmm. else. So what happens with Longfellow's poem, the warning really is about Samson. So um, at the end of the poem, he says, there is a poor blind Samson in this land, shorn of his strength and bound in bonds of steel, who may in some grim rebel raise his hand and shake the pillars of this common wheel, till the vast temple of our liberties, a shapeless mass of wreck and rubbish lies. So the warning really is about, listen, we need to make sure that these people are free. Otherwise, it's going to be a threat to the Temple of Liberty, a threat to America. Are there particular times? So it's interesting that you you there's there's a a long stretch of invocations of Samson that you've already mentioned. But are there does does his uh, influence wax and wane? And is there anything we can learn from that? Are there particular periods where Samson is uh, a more lively sort of figure to invoke, and times where Samson seems a less lively figure to invoke? I'm just interested in the way that certain figures appeal to us at certain times. And I'm wondering if there's anything uh, we can learn about Samson being taken up at different times. That's a tough one. Um, it does happen particularly in the colonial era, but at various points until today, it, it appears that different writers are riffing off of different elements of the black Samson legend. And so mm. people take portions of the Samson story or portions from Longfellow's poem, um, the image from Thomas Paine. So it's actually pretty difficult, um, as my co-author and I can uh, attest, to construct a clear sense of exactly how and when this happens. Most of what we're trying to do with this kind of reception history is um, make some effort at connecting some of the dots. Mm. So it's not that we're trying to construct, this is the exact and precise way that this story is handed down, but noting some of those key points and trying to draw connections between them. So for example, 
Um, one of the versions from Longfellow is taken up later by Skinner, whose version becomes a source for Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Um, so Dunbar is uh, considered basically the poet laureate um, of Black poets, and his poem, Black Samson of Brandywine, becomes extraordinarily important, particularly within African-American literature. So he takes up this idea of a Black Samson who is honest and noble and fine, who is a hero of this battle. Um, and this is something that then is taken up as part of the legend, as the legend grows, and specifically focuses on Samson being uh, black, but doesn't necessarily say that Samson was enslaved. Hmm. So the these figures morph and change over time as people are invoking them for particular reasons. So what was exciting and again, also difficult about this kind of project was trying to make those connections and understanding. Um, people don't always cite their sources the way you might <laughs> want them to. Um, and so some of it is um, trial and error, trying to figure out, do you think that this person would have known of this person? Um, can you does this sound like they are paraphrasing from a previous poet or a previous writer? Are they reusing some particular element and just not adding a footnote as we would do today? So it, it, it makes for a really fun project, but it also is, it's, it's tough to make those connections. Can you talk a little bit about ways in which that Black Samson tradition uh, that really extols uh, the Black Samson figure as this very positive figure, how it deals with, if it deals with at all, uh, those elements of Samson's characterization in the biblical text that are less obviously positive. Uh, Samson is portrayed as something of a trickster. Uh, he has these dalliances with women. You know, how is it that those elements of the Samson story are adjudicated uh, in this tradition? So I think the, um, I would say the Black Samson of Brandywine, again, from Dunbar is a, is a good example here. So Dunbar just leaves out the parts he doesn't want to talk about. Um, so he focuses on Samson as a heroic figure he doesn't mention Delilah in any way, um, but talks about Samson in the heat of the battle, uh, in the stir of the fight. He is an ebony giant, um, and this is someone who fought bravely. So for Dunbar, he's focusing on Samson as being uh, brave and heroic and just leaves out the part about Delilah uh, leaves out the beginning of uh, Samson's birth narrative or anything like that. And this is something that we see frequently, um, is that many of the writers will just select the parts that they want to talk about and focus on that. For Dunbar, this means transforming the story into one that celebrates African-American achievement and also focuses on African-American patriotism. 
the idea that African-Americans um, are loyal, are loyal to their country and deserve full humanity and, and full citizenship as well. That's interesting. So there's a real focus on political elements of the story, um, on, uh, like you say, elements of, of achievement. I mean, in some ways, this is not surprising. Uh, we see this kind of interpretation with other figures and just in biblical interpretation more generally. Those parts of, of the material that are uh, less on point are oftentimes muted. Do you see a difference in the way that Samson is received in religious versus non-religious contexts, or maybe the dichotomy is more uh, something like more religious contexts versus less religious contexts? That's a good question. Part of what we see is that although today many of us think of religion as something separate, um, we think about sacred and secular as a clear division. Um, many of the writers and artists that we're engaging did not think of this material in that way. So um, I don't know if you teach any introductory biblical studies classes, Dr. Stacker, but you, you and, and perhaps your students at, at Chicago are, are different, but I think uh, many of us are aware that folks do not enter our programs with the same de degree of knowledge, uh, content knowledge of biblical texts as perhaps people would have in, in previous generations. And so if you're looking at writers who are in the 18th century, the Bible is something that people use quite frequently. So it is not uh, abnormal for someone to cite biblical texts, uh, to paraphrase biblical texts, to use biblical imagery, um, because that's part of what an educated American should be able to do. So people are engaging um, biblical themes, biblical characters, biblical images much, much more frequently um, than we might anticipate someone doing today, apart from certain political uses of certain political texts these days. I'm interested in whether you think there is a, a sort of theology implicit in uh, this use of the figure of Samson. And obviously, part of the reason I'm asking is uh, so, as you know, Dolores Williams looks at the reception of Hagar, the figure of Hagar, and the way she gets taken up by African-American persons to work out a kind of theology of survival, a theology of naming God. Uh, you've done work on Hagar. I'm, I'm interested in hearing if you found something similar, a kind of theological substance uh, that gets communicated precisely in the invocation of a figure like Samson? I'm so glad you asked. I would <laughs> say, no, we don't see the kind of engagement that you, that you mentioned with theologian Dolores Williams and her work on Hagar. Um, this particular construction of a theology, it's more that... Um, writers, activists, and artists put him on the side of a heroic martyr mm -hmm. 
or think about him as someone who's simply enacting a, a very foolish vendetta. Um, and I, I, part of it is that at the end, at the end of the Samson story, there's no clear winner here. So Samson is dead. The temple is down. The Philistines are dead. Okay. And then we just move on. So it's not that the Israelites are all of a sudden magically liberated Hmm. after what happens with Samson. It's not clear in what way this is a victory. And so that ambiguity of the ending is part of what different writers, artists, artists and activists take up. It's not a clear triumph. Right. Is the ambiguity itself a site for then people to do further work with the figure or do they just turn to something else when they get uh, to the ambiguous point? Mm. What we've seen is people don't engage biblical texts the way biblical scholars might want them to. Hmm. So not only, <laughs> not only do they not clearly cite sources, um, they take up a figure or an image and run with it. Mm-hmm. So the, the Samson that someone might be engaging may not deal with the full Samson story, but, hmm. but a very select part of it. So, again, that's part of what's interesting about biblical interpretation is you see how so many different figures catch hold of something and run with it. But most of the people that we're working with are not offering you know, a, a full journal article on their understanding of Samson. It's really... Um, one poem, one mention, one citation, uh, one paraphrase, and that's that's part of a larger argument. I think that's that's interesting to point out, especially when I think about Samson in relation to depictions of other judges in the Book of Judges. So, in that text, there are other figures that are not so complicated, but. There are also figures for whom their stories are relatively brief by comparison. Yes. And so I wonder, do you think that there's some push or pull there that's going on? That is, you've got to have enough material to, to work with if you're going to make a character really resonate. On the other hand, if you've got so much material, it's easier to pick and choose, especially when you've got contradictory material. Yes, absolutely. And so there, there's enough here that there's a full story we get from before Samson's birth all the way to Samson's death. Um, there's lots of material to work with. We have dialogue. We have action. And it means that um, people can use this source material in lots of different ways. And again, keeping in mind that in previous eras, one could expect that an whatever audience you were talking to of literate Americans, people knew the story. So uh, these days, if someone asks me about my work, I have to start off with basics. Okay, so have you ever heard of judges <laughs> in the Bible? 
have you okay have you heard of samson in the hebrew bible sam the strong guy okay yes but <laughs> it, it may not go beyond that in in earlier periods you could anticipate that again anyone who was literate people who could read and write um, knew biblical stories and knew them very well so you you didn't really have to explain the full story you could say samson people know who you're talking about and more people are familiar with samson i found than when my last book when i worked on hagar it took a lot of questions for me to get people to remember who she was so it was a lot more okay if i say abraham okay i remember him Okay, Abraham, Sarah, no, Abraham, Isaac. Oh, yeah. So it, it took a lot to get to Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael to get people to remember that. A um, hundred years ago, you could say Hagar, again, to a literate person or even someone who's just um, part of society, people people knew what that was. So this is really, among all of the things that are interesting here, one of the things that stands out to me as fascinating but really difficult is not only are you doing the difficult work of trying to trace out some of these threads and seeing which of these leads are actually leads and who's listening to whom and how it, what the connections are, all of that is a giant and difficult and exciting project. But then you also have on the... Right. That's the sort of supply side. And then there's the consumer side of it, which is knowing what kind of work any of these invocations would do. You have to track something about the, as you just mentioned, biblical literacy, the fact that just mentioning Samson in a more biblically literate culture does different kinds of work than it would in one that was less biblically literate. Uh, did you find anything interesting on that side? Did you feel like you had to trace out more of what the the uptake side of things were? I, I'm just interested to hear you talk a little bit more about that side of the research. Sure. Um, the the History Channel example, I think, is a is a good one here, where you see that, um, as I mentioned, the the Bible miniseries by the History Channel included a Samson figure who was played by a black actor. And so part of the concern that many people raised was that this was inaccurate. Mm. So it, in this case, it was people who were familiar with the story, but in their minds had constructed a Samson figure who did not look like the actor who was portrayed. Mm -hmm. There were other issues as well. Um, the, the way that they constructed the figure, it was... It was also um, not quite sticking to the biblical text and uh, taking some liberties. But one of the main concerns that people were writing in with was this concern that, well, but he couldn't, he couldn't possibly be black. So this was a case of people being somewhat familiar and having their own specific understanding of mm -hmm. what that figure must have looked like and pushing back on this particular interpretation. Do you see any of that in the reception of these 
18th and 19th and 20th century examples that you've been talking about? Is there pushback against those as well? It feels less like pushback and more just a different view. So um, if there's a view of Samson as being a heroic figure, there's also someone who says, "Mm, but he does die in the end. Um, If someone points out that uh, Samson is someone who is um, used by God, someone else points out, but again, the Israelites are not uh, freed. This is not the Israelites on the other side of the sea dancing with tambourines. So it's more that people uh, take particular elements of the story and use them for their own purposes. Can I also ask you, uh, we've been talking a lot about 18th, 19th, 20th century examples, and you've made reference to uh, this 21st century example of this TV program. But can you say maybe a little bit more about what you see as the relevance of these earlier American receptions of Samson for the contemporary period? What do we learn about Samson and his reception that might be relevant for us now? Well, one of the things that um, my co-author and I tried to talk about is how much the Samson story is used as a way to talk about the possibilities of issues of race in the U.S. So especially in earlier periods, um, you have this concern with pro and anti-slavery advocates. And people on both sides are employing biblical texts in order to make their argument. That continues even after we have the abolition of slavery in the U.S. And so part of what we're trying to point out is that this concern about issues of race and how it's dealt with and what that says about liberty in America is something that continues. So we're looking at Samson and this this question about continued struggle against oppression and some of the questions that these early writers were asking continue to be questions for us today. Uh, In the epilogue, we talk about how we um, we were writing this book in the midst of the Ferguson uprisings following the murder of Michael Brown and how much we both realized that some of these questions and issues continue to be relevant even today. I couldn't help but wonder, Nisha, in seeing what's been going on in the past couple of weeks here in the United States, if there are analogies being drawn I haven't seen any in the media, for example, but, you know, as you say, we're in a less biblically literate moment than we have been historically. But I've wondered about analogies that might be drawn to the George Floyd case. Yes, as you say, um, folks these days are are less familiar with biblical texts. And so I don't think that we see those used as frequently Um, I have not seen anything specifically related to the murder of George Floyd or 
Breonna Taylor or, or others recently. Um, and even in the instance of the police killing of Michael Brown and others, we haven't seen um, the type of invocation of biblical text that we have seen in the past. Um, again, I think some of that is um, many of the leaders of contemporary movements are younger, are um, not necessarily coming from faith communities, and are perhaps engaging other more contemporary material. So in the past, um, for example, when we talk about the civil rights movement, of course, people talk about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who uh, had a PhD in theology, um, who was a minister. And so, of course, you're going to get much more engagement with biblical text, with Christian theology. I see less of that today, although, of course, there are faith leaders who have been part of these movements and protests, but we don't see them as out front as we did in previous eras. So there are many more Black women, uh, Black queer women especially, who have been out front, whereas in previous decades, one might have seen more cishet older Black male ministers. It seems to me that the figures who get invoked aren't biblical figures or uh, figures from anything other than recent history, right? So the figures who get invoked, George Floyd himself, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Tamir Rice, Depayne Middleton, Myra Thompson, the Brand Taylor, the the names getting invoked are actual people, and I'm wondering if that represents a shift, or if that represents actual people playing the role that biblical figures might have played. Right. So is this is this similar in your eyes? You've 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 paid so such careful attention to this phenomenon. Is this similar in your eyes to the way biblical figures used to get invoked? Now we're invoking actual people, or does that change the term so much that it's just a different kind of thing? I think what we're seeing is younger people out front um, who have their own canon. Mm. And so these... Um, these other people, like uh, Tamir Rice, like Michael Brown, are the people that they go to immediately. So they don't have to reach back for an example from the biblical canon. They can say, here are people in recent memory in my lifetime that I can mm. call upon. One, one of the older examples. So uh, along with what I see is people offering a litany of names mm -hmm. is also connecting contemporary police killings with Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. So I have seen uh, people making those connections and talking more about lynching. And once you mention lynching, um, also then beginning to talk about Ida B. Wells Barnett uh, and other folks 
a little farther back, Mm -hmm. but we're not seeing people reach as far back as the biblical canon, since there are others in more recent memory that they can draw upon. Yeah, they have their own canon, though. That strikes me as really insightful and a way of connecting the two different kinds of invocation of figures. There's a kind of canonicity in both cases, but it's a different canon. Yes, I think so. Uh, And also includes uh, music, includes contemporary culture in a way that you wouldn't see in in previous periods. So uh, with the Freedom Riders, you have someone like Bernice Johnson Reagan and those who are constructing uh, chants and music and drawing upon gospel traditions and black music. Today, you have, oh, I'm not remembering her name, but the You Gonna Lose Your Job woman, mm-hmm. um, who we have a video of her being detained by police and who appears to spontaneously uh, construct a song which by the next week is up on Spotify. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go all the way back to a Negro spiritual. You can, you can use something that someone created that's up on Spotify that then people are now using in their own protests. And that's a week, Mm -hmm. not centuries. It sounds like from what you're saying that you see a fair bit of continuity in maybe the process uh, or the intent of these kinds of references, uh, either to literary figures in the case of Samson uh, or real figures in contemporary conversation. And it sounds like you see certain gains that are being made in this shift. Am I hearing that right? Yes, I think so. So I realize we're coming to the end of our time, and I feel a little badly because there's so much more that's worth talking about here. But we like to ask all of our guests, when you think about this project, um, when you think about the work that you do, what is your biggest question or what are your biggest questions that you're asking? Mm, I think that one of my biggest questions is how do real people use the Bible. So um, for this particular project, my co-author and I were looking at Samson and how he becomes part of American history, culture, and literature. But I think that's also an overall question for me. And how about if I were to ask the opposite question? What are your smallest questions? What are the nitty gritty details that maybe aren't as significant but the things that really drive you on a small scale? I think it's still related that I'm still, even at a small scale, interested in the particularities of how real people read and, and use biblical texts. So uh, my next project is on... African American evangelist Jarena Lee. Mm. And it's the same type of question. Um, how do real people use the Bible? How do they um, 
construct themselves as they think about their own God talk, their own theology uh, in creating their self-narrative. So I will say that um, the fact that you combine both a scholarly interest in how real people are taking up and reading the Bible, as well as the scholarly taking up and reading of the Bible, the fact that you're able to do both of those things at the very highest level means that the kind of scholarship you produce is both illuminating and in some respects just inspiring to be able to see how these things actually interplay at the at the deepest and the less deep levels. I will just ask this one last question. So we uh, give each of our guests a chance to make a public service announcement. And the public service announcement is simply this. What do you wish people, maybe regular people, maybe people in other fields, what do you wish people understood about the kind of work that you do that usually they don't? Hmm. I would say I, I wish people understood that a lot goes into it that I, I think Dolly Parton said people people don't understand how much work it takes for her to look this cheap. <laughs> it takes a lot of work to try and construct a narrative, to connect the dots, to create a story, a narrative um, for this material so that it's not just here's a collection of uh, instances in which people mention this biblical character mm -hmm. that it, it does take a lot of work to, to create some sort of narrative about all of this material. Professor Junior, thank you so much for being with us. This is the biggest questions podcast and we look forward to the opportunity to talk with you more. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>